invite you to open your scriptures to that passage that we read a little earlier in James chapter 1. One of my favorite stories all time about how the Bible impacts and changes a life is by a guy you've probably never heard of. His name is Emile Callier. He was raised in a naturalistic environment in France, meaning he didn't believe in God or the supernatural or anything like that. In fact, he had such little impact or influence by the Bible that the first time he ever saw a Bible in his life was when he was 23 years old. He had a longing, though. He had a longing for self-understanding. He expressed that longing in a powerful uh, essay that he wrote, or I should say more or less in his journal, and he wrote this. During long night watches in the foxholes of World War I, I had a strange way, uh, in a strange way I'd been longing, and he says, I must say, however strange it may sound, for a book that would understand me. But I knew of no such book. So what did Callier do? He set out to construct a book that would understand him on his own. And he writes, I quote, Now I would secret in secret prepare one of my own for private use. He's going to come up with a book of his own that would understand him and his life. And over time, he constructed this book and he put quotations in it of famous authors and literature Um, phrases out of philosophy and so forth and so on. And so he put this together, but in the end, he sat down one day and under a tree, he decided he was going to read his book and he was looking for the satisfaction that he thought we'd get from it. But he says, I carried no strength, it carried no strength of persuasion. And so what he was looking for, he didn't find. In fact, the only thing he found in the book that he had written was emptiness. Around the very same time, His wife, who knew the Bible to some degree, uh, ventured out one day and came across a Protestant church. She went into the church and happened into the office of the elderly pastor who was there that day. And she said, as she writes, that she says that, I heard myself asking him, do you have a Bible in French? And he did. And so she returned home went into the house, and immediately gave the French Bible to her husband, Emile. And he vividly describes what happens when she placed that book in his hand. And I quote, I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read. I could not find the words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet I never knew it, and I attempted, therefore, to write this book on my own. He goes on to say that I continued reading deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and then that night a decisive insight flashed through my whole being, and I came to the realization that of the one to whom the book spoke, the one who spoke and acted in these pages had become alive to me. The book had found me and made it clear that it was absurd of me to speak of a book that would understand a man because the only book that could understand me was the Bible. And it could do so, he said, because its pages are animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts, To this God that night I prayed. 
And it was that God, the same God, of whom it was spoken in the book that changed my life. Did you hear what he said? I love those words. The one who spoke and acted in them came alive to me. The book had found me. See, that's how Emile Callier's response to the Bible, it changed his life. James puts it this way. We heard last week in verse 18. He says that you've been made a kind of first fruits of his creatures, he says, because God brought you forth. It's a pregnancy term. You were born, you were given new life, he says, listen, by the word of truth. The word of truth, the living word of God is what saves us, he says. The apostle Paul describes it this way. I'm sorry, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Again, in Hebrews 4, 12, it says this, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. See, that's the Bible test that James is going to give us because James is a book that is replete with tests so that you and I can discern the difference between a fiction faith and a non-fiction faith, a faith in Christ that is real and one that is not real. And James says that this section of the, of the book that he wrote, that the Bible is the test. So let me say it straight to you. Your response to the Bible is the proof of whether you have a non-fiction faith or not. So the question this morning that you have to ask, and I did this week as I read this text, is this. Is the word of God alive to you? And maybe more importantly, is the word of God alive in you? Or as Emile Callier would say it, has the book Found you. You see, this passage from verses 18 to the end of the chapter in verse 27 is all about the Word. The Word of truth, verse 18. The implanted Word, verse 21. Be doers of the Word, verse 22. Don't be just a hearer of the Word, verse 23. Four times in this text, the Bible refers to, or James refers to the Bible as the Word. But this Bible test is different than any ones you might have taken at Faith Christian School or anywhere else because those kinds of tests are mainly informational. In other words, they're Bible information. That, do you know what the content of the Bible is? But this test, the one that James is giving us this morning, is not so much about Bible information as it is about Bible transformation. See, James isn't so much concerned about how much you know, but the question is, do you do what you know? See, James is going to give us a test this morning, and it's a two-part Bible test. The first part, the positive part, is showing us what the right response to God's Word is if you truly know Him. The second one is going to elaborate on the negative side of it, the response you should not have. So there's a right response, and there's a wrong response to the Word of God, and we need to have them both in our lives. So let's unpack them, can we? One at a time. The first one is the right response to the Word of God, and that's found in verses 19 and 20. If you look at the text, it begins with this. Know this. See, what James is doing is connecting verses 18 and 19 together. He says, you know, the very power that the Word has that God used to regenerate you, to bring you to be born again, to have new life, that very power that brought you forth not only changes your future. See, it's going to save you someday 
when you die and you'll meet Christ and you'll be accepted into his presence. See, that's what the Bible does. It does that. It changes your future. But James wants us to get this, and we sorely need to, that when the Bible is alive to you, it doesn't just change your future, i.e., verse 21, able to save your souls. No, see, it's more than that. See, the Bible, if it's in you and it's alive, it will change not only your future, but your present. And that's why he starts out with this. Know this, my beloved brother, let every one of you be swift to hear. See, the Bible, if it's truly in you and you have a nonfiction faith, not only changes your destiny, but it changes your desires. It changes your deeds. It changes your life then, and it changes your life now. And James says that's the test. Is, is that true of your life? Philippians 2.13 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. That's how salvation works if you have it. It's God's word in and God's word out. See, what is in your life will come out of your life if you know him. That's how it works. And so your response to the word of God, how you live your life in obedience to all that God through Christ has commanded us, is the telltale sign. It is the litmus test. It is the proof of whether your faith is valid or not. Turn, if you would, just briefly, hold your finger in James and turn to Mark chapter 4. Jesus gives a parable, and you might be familiar with it, but I used it this morning as an illustration because Jesus is very strong about how vital and crucial it is for you to respond rightly to the word of God. Again, the little phrase, the word, is used even more in this text, eight times to be exact. And in Mark chapter 4, in verses 14 and following, if you read the entire text, Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower and the seed. And he tells those who are listening that day of four different places that the seed is given or dropped on. The first one is along the path. The second one is the rocky ground. The third one, the seed falls upon thorns. And the last one is the good soil. Now, what is the same about all of these is that if you read the text, they all hear the word of God. And Jesus in his story goes out of his way to say that every person Every, it's represented by a soil in this text, hears the word of God. So it's not that they don't hear the same message. They do. That's not what differentiates between them. What differentiates between the soils is how they respond to it. See, the first path, it says they hear it, but Satan comes immediately and takes the word of God because it was only on the surface. It, it never really got below the surface in their lives. The rocky ground, they hear it, and at first they receive it with joy, and, and they're excited about it. And some of you are going to be here today, and you might say, well, you know, that really means that's what I need to do, and I need to listen to that, Pastor, and I need the gospel, and you receive it with joy, but you know what? It never gets really deep in their lives either because it says it has no root in them. And as a result, since it's not really been embedded, the seed has never been embedded in their heart, then when persecution comes for the sake of the word, they fall away, the Bible says. Those among the thorns, they hear the word of God too. But the cares of the world, right? The desire for other things, they get distracted. They get involved in it. It's not that they don't want God in their life. It's not that they don't want to be religious. It's not even that they didn't attend church to some degree. But that wasn't their passion. 
And their response to the word of God is, it's marginalized. It's not really that crucial in my life. And I can really make it without that most days. See, and they get involved in their job and their career and getting a vacation and um, and all their children's lives. And those things are good. But see what they do? The Bible says they choke the word. They choke it. And there's three wrong responses to the Bible, to the word of God, the seed. There's only one right one. And that one right response is the one that stands for those who are truly saved, those who have a non-fiction faith. It's the good soil. Now, like all the other ones, the good soil people, they hear the word of God, but their response is categorically different. It's a polar opposite of the other ones. They accept it, and it goes deep, and, and then it says, and it bears fruit. It produces something. See, they do it. In other words, see, all of them hear it, but only one of them do it. And that's why this morning this message for you and I is absolutely crucial because everyone in this auditorium today under the sound of my voice is hearing the word of God. And for most of you, you hear it all the time. You hear it on Sundays, you hear it other places, and it's not a lack of hearing it. But the question is, are you doing it? Is it alive in you? Is it transforming and changing your life. See, because that's what James says is the Bible test. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor back in the 1740s, and he wrote a number of books, but three of them have this in common. The first one is Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God, it's called. The second one was Thoughts on a New England Revival, and the third one, my favorite, was called Religious Affections. Every one of those books has this in common, that Jonathan Edwards says, if you want to know someone's really saved, you want to know one of the proofs, one of the tests, is that when they become Christians, truly become Christians, they will have a new relationship and a new response to Scripture. See, that's what James is saying. He's saying that when you become born again and the, and the word of truth regenerates you, it becomes part and live inside of you. And so he says, this is what, watch, this is what the new birth looks like. The new birth results in a new life. And you know what it's characterized? These kind of responses to the Bible. Here he mentions them. I call it the triple transformation. Ready? You need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's what a right response to God's word looks like. Quick to hear, literally in the Greek, means this. Hurry up and listen right? Hurry up and listen. Rapid pursuit. Now, in Jewish culture that James writes from, from Jerusalem, right, he is, has a Jewish mindset of what hearing is. Quick to hear. Hearing and doing go together in Jewish thinking. And us, hearing and doing are separated, not in their book. That's what the Shema is about. It, it, that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, that goes together. When you hear God, and you really hear him, then you will do it. And here's what James says. The right response to the word of God is someone who is listening it, listen, listen, listening to it and living it. Quick to hear. Now, conversely, he says, slow to speak. Slow to speak is a hasty reaction Getting that out of there. Not a hasty reaction to what is heard, rather a thoughtful evaluation. It's the idea of delaying or hesitating, not really 
saying something right off the bat to you, take it all in. And then slow to wrath. In other words, I don't get upset by what God says and what it means for my life. I don't, I don't, I'm not filled with anger. And it also goes not only vertically, but horizontally. And I don't get angry or hostile or harbor resentment for, for people who don't agree with me exactly what I think it says. So basically, when it comes down to it, here's what James is saying. That salvation is this, the word of God getting into it, into you, and you getting into the word of God. So James says, here's the test. People who are responding right to the word of God, they don't close their ears, they close their mouth. See? They don't close their ears. They listen, but they're not so quick to speak, and they're certainly not so quick to get angry at God and others. So James is saying this to us this morning. Let me give you some application. That one of the reasons why, and maybe this has been you, I have talked to so many people about studying the Bible over the years. And you may be at the place where you're studying the Word of God, but you say, Pastor Walker, I try to read it every morning. I I want it to be part of my life. I know that's what it means to be a Christian. But I have to say, it's not really changing me. It's not really liberating me. And freeing me from some of the sins I really have struggled with for a long time. And, and, and maybe this morning you need to realize from this passage that the reason that that is true maybe is because you are angry and you have a proud spirit. See, people who are angry, they don't listen to people and they don't listen to God. A proud person gets angry. And you know why they get angry? Because they think that they know exactly what should be going on in their life. See, they think that they should know what should happen and they should know when it happens. And maybe you're here this morning and in your mind you're rehearsing, hey, you know, God has brought this into my life. You know what? And I'm upset by it. I mean, God could have stopped it and God could have done this. And you know, God has this in my life. You know what? And you're angry because you're not listening to him. And when you don't listen to him, it's because we're proud. A person who does not listen is proud. A person who gets angry is proud. For example... Perhaps you're here this morning and you wouldn't call it this, but you're not listening to God. And here's how, how we know, because your marriage is falling apart. See, and you're angry about that. And you can't fix it. But see, God's telling you, hey, this is what it means to be a husband. This is what it means to be the man in your home. This is how it looks when you love your wife. And as a wife, hey, this is what it means to be a wife. And this is what it means to be a parent. And this is how you should raise your children. And this is what should be most important. And, and, and you hear those things, but you don't do them, see. And then you are talking to God and you're upset with him. And listen, I want my marriage to work. Why aren't you fixing it? Why aren't you changing her? Why aren't you changing him? But you're not listening, see. He wants to tell you how to do that, but you're not listening, and you're angry about the outcome of it. See, you're not listening to God, and your priorities are all wrong. He's told you to seek his kingdom first, but you give him token allegiance and loyalty. See, you have your own ambitions, you have your own desires, and you have your own agenda. You have it for you and your career and for your kids. And you get angry because you've done the best thing for them in their sports career, and you provided the best path to get to the right college and the right career and you've done all that and you put money and time and you've traveled and you've done all of these things but now that your kids are starting to grow up and starting to leave your house they're not really interested in church anymore because they never went that much and they're not really interested in reading their bible or spiritual things and you're angry because you think you've done all the right things but all along all along 
You weren't listening to God about what mattered most. See, maybe you're here this morning and you're not listening to God and you're a single in your 20s or 30s and see, you're not listening to God. He's, he's telling you, here's who you should date. Maybe young people and teenagers. Here's who you should date. Here's who you should be interested in. And then eventually, here's who you should marry. But see, you think you know better. You think that you know who you should like and who you should date. And God says, I've given you instructions on those things. And see, you're mad because when the more you like this person, the more that you're not compatible, the more that you don't have things in common. And you don't see, but you know what? But you really want, now you're so deep into the relationship, you're not sure that you can turn it around. And James gives us the reason, and that's prideful anger. And you know why it's so important to hear it? Because prideful anger, can I say it, is very, very dangerous. How dangerous? Well, he tells us. Look at verse 20, because it begins with the little word for. You know why you need to be quick to hear, so to speak, so to wrath? You know why that's the right response to the Bible? Here's why. Because any other response won't produce the desired effect. And that desired effect is this. The anger of man. If you get angry at God and you start getting angry at other people when things don't go your way because you're not listening, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So James is not, hear me, is not talking in this passage just your simple anger. No, he's talking about a cancerous type of anger. An anger that takes you away from God. See, there's a difference between a man-centered anger and a God-centered anger. That's why he says the anger of man, human anger, does not produce the righteousness of God. And in, his, in your mind, he wants you to think this. There's a man-centered anger and there's a God-centered righteousness and they are completely incompatible. See, they don't go together. You cannot respond to the Bible or to others who speak truth in your life with anger and at the same time think that God is accepting of it. See, there's two things that you can tell. If you say, Pastor Walker, do I have that kind of anger going on? Because often we're blind to it. How would you know? Well, it's two characteristics in the text about this cancerous anger. You know what? The first thing is it's quick. We would say today in our modern vernacular, short-fused. Zero to 60 in two seconds. It's the kind of anger that flares up when you don't get your way. When people don't treat you the way that you think that they should treat you. When people disagree with your perspective and point of view. See, this kind of person gets so angry because they always have to be right, no matter what. Because normally, anger it was made by God to defend his honor, truth, and other people. But that's not what human-centered anger does. It defends self. It defends what you want, your purpose, your agenda, the things that you want. So you get angry about it. See, it's a self-consumed type of anger. And that type of anger, James says, does not produce the righteousness of God. It cannot meet the requirements of anger that God says is acceptable because it's quick. And the Bible says, secondly, it's unrighteous. It's unrighteous because it's all about you and not about God. It's a me kind of anger, not a we kind of anger. It's about you and your agenda and what you like and what you want, and you've blocked out everybody else because to you it doesn't matter as long as you get what you want. 
You didn't give me what I deserve. You didn't give me what I should have. Two ways it's expressed in relationships is, are the following. People either clam up or they blow up. See, clam up anger does this, and maybe this is you this morning, and don't try to pin it on your personality, right, or your upbringing. People who clam up with prideful anger, they keep it inside. You may not even know that they're really that angry, but they're the kind of people who hold on to things. They hold on to grudges. And you know, time passes and they don't let it go. See, it controls them. And eventually, over time, it produces bitterness. And how do you know that bitterness is there? Well, because they tell everybody they can about how they've been offended and hurt and how people have wronged them and the things that they've done to them and how they've been treated unfairly. And they clam up about it and keep it inside and it destroys them from the inside out. But there's another kind of prideful anger, not just for people who clam up, there's people who blow up. And maybe you've seen this. It flares up and explodes. And they're not really interested, honestly, my experience has been, they're not interested in conversations with those they have problem with. They're really interested in condemnation. They just want to put you down and make you feel awful and give you insults so they can feel better and justified about the positions they take. They're not really interested in being righteous. They're interested in being right. And at times, there's a huge difference between those two. They're not interested in dialoguing with the person that has bothered them or offended them. All they want to do is destroy them and all of their arguments. See, the, all of this does not, is not produced by the righteousness of God. It's produced by pride. That's why that's why it's so dangerous. Pride is the reason that we both blow up and we clam up. So why, if you're here this morning, why are you bitter? Why do you still hold a grudge? Pride is the very reason for it. Proud people, they don't know the difference between a major issue and a minor issue. No matter what the issue is, they get angry. They argue the same way for every single conviction that they hold. They're not really teachable. And when they confront you, it is not out of love. It's often out of hatred. So James says, listen, it is absolutely crucial that you respond rightly to the word of God. And here's what it looks like. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But then he says, let me flip it over that coin on the other side and let me show you that there's a wrong response to the word of God. And that's how he builds his argument because the very first word, look in the text, in verse 21 is therefore. See, he's gonna say, you know what I just told you in verses 19 and 20? See, that's the right response. This is how you should respond to the word of God when you hear it. Therefore, don't respond this way. In other words, it could be this. Therefore, it could be translated because of this, because of this being the right way, don't do this because it's the wrong way. And look how he describes the wrong way of responding to the Bible. Therefore, put away all filthiness. And the word put away is used numerous times in the New Testament. Romans 13, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 2. And every time it gives the analogy or the metaphor of clothes, garments. It's like ladies or even guys, I suppose, you go in your closet and there are things, oh, you might have lost weight. Or you know what? Those things are a little outdated. So you know what you do? You clean out your closet. It's time for a new wardrobe. 
So you say, hey, these don't, things don't fit anymore. You know, I'm getting a little older. That's probably not something I should be wearing anymore or whatever it might be. And it's the idea of taking off filthy garments, d- garments that are dirty, unclean, in this case, obviously sinful. We clean out our closets. It's time for, James would say, spring cleaning. Because some of us this morning, if we would be honest about ourselves, we have pride hanging in our closet, our heart closet. Anger has been hanging in your heart closet for so long that you know nothing different. Bitterness, selfishness, animosity, they all hang side by side on hangers in your closet, your spiritual closet. And here's what James says, get rid of them. If you are truly born again and the word of God is in you and you have new life, you should be outgrowing those things. You should be becoming more like Jesus and those things should no longer be hanging in your closet. So James would tell us this morning, you want to pass the Bible test? Before the word of God, before the word of God can be welcomed into your heart, before it can change you, not just when you read it or study it, but it really transforms your life. See, you have to deal with the sin that's in your heart closet because it's controlling you. The Bible cannot control you when you are being controlled by sin. When I went to Bible college in Minnesota, every year they would have, toward the end of the second semester, they would have what's called white glove inspection. And they would tell you in your room, you have to come in, and they literally would put on a white glove and they would come in the room, and they had to see, you have to clean up your room and make sure that it's not completely trashed. I live with a guy, and if he's watching today, I'm not going to mention his name, Todd. <laughs> um, he was a great guy. I still have contact with him to this day. We were, he's just a great guy, so fun. But he was, may I say, how I say it, a slob. Um, we had a couch in our room, and he, would, he wouldn't put his clothes on the hangers. He would just lay them over the couch and Mountain Dew and bags of chips, and he would be all over the map. So there was his part of the room that was a nuclear disaster. Mine over here, although I asked my wife, I'm kind of OCD about the other aspect of it, cleaning. I like it all to be a certain way and blah, blah, blah. And so he was there, and so I said, dude, the white glove is for your half the room. And they would come in, literally, and he would have to spend, he would spend hours getting that side of the room ready. Literally, and they would come in, and we failed every single time. Every single time. Now, let me tell you, that's what James says. You have to do some white glove inspecting of your heart and life if you want the Bible inside of you to really change you. You can't be holding on to those things. You can't be letting those things control your life. And, went to, and, and, and look at the word. You know how comprehensive this cleaning is? Notice, all of it, all filthiness, all of the rampant wicked, all of it, all the things that you've, the attitudes that you've taken on about marriage, about your wife, about your job, about what matters, about what you say, what comes out, all those things that you picked up from the world, all of that stuff. See, listen, listen, God is not interested in partial purity. He's not. He's not interested in partial righteousness. He's not. All of it, he says. All of it. Imagine going to the dentist. I hate going to the dentist, do you? I just went to the dentist and had my teeth cleaned. 
And I have to admit up front, I'm not a flosser. I don't do it. If you do, better. Now, I have to say, though, on my defense, I've never had a cavity in my life yet. And so I, I'm a little lazy when it comes to flossing. But they told me this, hey, Pastor Walker, we're going to have to take x-rays. X-rays? I mean, look in there. It looks good, right? They said, no, we're going to have to take x-rays. You know why? Because you could have things between your teeth. And I said, you want my money, right? <laughs> no, they said, really, really, you could have cavities and problems and plaque building up between your teeth, and you can't see it. So they took the x-rays, and then she goes, look at the screen. I go, okay. She goes, look, see that? That shade part, that's plaque. You can't see it, can you? I go, I can now. I can also see the bill, but nevertheless. <laughs> but she went in there, and she started flossing all my teeth and got in between, you know what? And I didn't tell her, you know, just get rid of some of the plaque. I Leave some of it. Everyone don't care. No, you, what is it? When you go to the dentist, they get all of it out. You don't say, hey, I know I have seven cavities. Fill three of them and I'll catch you later. <laughs> you don't say that, right? Why? When you go to the dentist, they get all of your cavities. They get all of the plaque, right? So you're at home and dinner is over and you tell, hey, I'm a good husband. Hey, honey, I'm a, I'll catch the dishes tonight. So you go over there and do the dishes, and you put them away, and a couple hours later, she's working through the cabinet. She goes, like, what did you do? You cleaned the dishes. She goes, no, you didn't. I said, yeah, I did most of them. I, but some of those forks were really hard to get off. And that one crusty thing around that plate, yuck, I wasn't touching that. <laughs> right? So she wasn't happy that I partially cleaned the glasses and wiped off some of the forks and left the crusty stuff around the plate. Surprise. That's not how you clean dishes. You don't just clean some of them, right? You have cancer, and it's serious. And you go to the doctor, and he says, if we don't have radical surgery, you're going to die. And you think about it for a few moments. You say, hey, how many tumors are there? He says, five. Hey, let's do two, and let's see what happens. You don't say that? Why? It's cancer. Just get some of the cancer. I'll be happy if you get some of it. You know what, the, you, know what you really want to hear when the surgery's done? Did you get it all, right? Isn't that what you ask? That's what God's asking this morning. You know that? See, he says, you want the word of God to work in your life and really change you? Here's the question. Did you get it all? Did you get it all? I mean, are you really repentant about the things in your life? Or are you kind of just partially repentant. Well, how does that happen, Pastor Walker? How do you get that kind of attitude? See, watch this. Here's what you don't do in response to the God's word. You don't get proud, because proud pride expresses itself in anger. But in contrast to that, listen to what he says. Receive, verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. Meekness. Do you know the opposite of anger is not self-control? It's humility. You know why you can't get yourself to get rid of the sin and ask God to help you through it and why you can't handle the fact that you might be wrong and why you have to argue about everything? You know why? Because you're full of anger and you're full of pride and you lack humility. Can I say it straight to you? An anger problem is a humility problem. What do you mean, Pastor Walker? Well, here's what humility says. If the Bible is alive, and it's not grabbing me and moving me and disturbing me, and it's not really working on me, 
then it's my fault. It's not the Bible's fault. It's not God's fault. If my marriage is in a wreck because I'm not changing, you know whose fault it is? Not your spouse, yours. It may be theirs too, but it's yours. See, that's what humility says, but most people end up making excuses. You know, that was a very hard of the book of the Bible to read, and you know, I'm not having studied that long, and that's really difficult. But instead of making excuses, here's what humility says. It's me. It's me. See, humility says what I really need is the Bible every day, and I need lots of it. Not the daily bread for five minutes in the morning. No, humility. It takes humility to search the scriptures and really get into it. Because if all you want to do is microwave your Christianity and spend a few minutes in the Bible and one or two minutes on prayer and think that that's going to cut it, you're wrong. You know what that is? I hate to say it. It's pride. You really don't think you need it, but you have to fulfill your Christian duty. And I'm not here to legalize how much time it is, but I can tell you five minutes, isn't it? But a true Christian with a nonfiction faith, you know what? They love the Bible. David said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. See, humility searches the scripture and lets the scripture search you. And when it searches you and you get into it and it gets into you, it's going to revise you. And humility is okay with that. It's going to rearrange your life. It's going to change your priorities and your values. It's going to get all over your calendar and rip it up. Because humility has the ability to admit that what's wrong with your marriage and what's wrong with your life and what's wrong with your priorities and what's wrong with is you. You. James says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Implanted. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is even used. And what it means is something that's inside of you, but not naturally inside of you, that was put inside of you. And James says, if the Bible has been embedded in you, if it's really in you, and it's alive like a little seed that's growing, see, that seed's alive, and it's going to keep growing and keep sprouting and getting bigger and bigger and taking over more and more of your life. He says, the implanted word which is able to save your soul. So from the very beginning of the process of salvation, verse 18, when you were brought forth, to the end, when your ultimate soul is saved, from the very begin to the end, see, it's the word of God and how you respond to it that tells the whole story. So let me ask you this morning, has the Bible found you? I mean, really found you. Can you say with Emil this morning, and I open the Bible, and the one it talks about, and his mighty words and deeds has come alive to me. Can you say that this is what you love and this is what you desire, that that implanted word, that seed is ever growing in your life, not perfectly or sinlessly, but it's growing. And you know what? I try to, by the grace of God, and every day I'm confessing my sins and repenting. You know what? Because I love God's word and I want to hear it and I want to obey it and I'm not quick to be angry about it and disagree with people or I get angry at God when it doesn't turn out the way I think it would be. You know why? Because it's everything to me. It's everything to me. That's the Bible test. The question is, are you passing it? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and 
no one looking around. Everyone today has heard the word. Now, here's your chance to respond. You've heard it. Will you do it? Now, listen, to, you know what that means, some of you guys as dads? You'd have to admit that you haven't really made being a dad that important. And you need to spend more time with your kids and really disciple them and see yourself as their number one Bible teacher. But you haven't. And only humility would allow you to get that right. Because right now in your mind, as I'm talking, you may be trying to defend yourself. Hey, but you don't know. And they, they did, and you... No. Here's what the Bible says. Humility says, receive it with meekness. Power under control. Humility. Yes, Lord, it's me. It's me. I need to change in how I'm a dad. Maybe you're here as a wife this morning and say, listen, you know what? My husband, when he does this, that, and I, you know what? Here's how I respond. And I get argumentative. And you know what? It gets, you know what? Controlling. Father, I, I admit that this morning. Humbly, it's me. It's me. Maybe you're at odds with someone right here in our congregation. And there are things that you have said and done. You know what? And you're defending yourself, or you're defending what you think is right. So are you right, or are you righteous? See, some of you may need to make calls today when this service is over. Talk to someone in person. Make a visit. Humility would do that. But if you're defensive, and you're angry, you're holding on to your pride, and God's word cannot work in you when you do that. And some of you this morning, by the end of my message, you're saying, woo, not really sure whether I've been born again. I'm not really sure that I've ever been rejected. Listen, I'm not really sure the word of God has ever really got into me. Because remember those other th seed responses, those other along the path? I mean, I know the word, and at one point I was joyful over it, but you know what? I don't know that it's ever really got below the surface in my life. I don't know if it's really got down deep and changed me. Maybe that's what's at stake in your life. I'll be down here after the service. I would love to talk to anyone about how you can know that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you would like to pray for, with someone this morning, please, we're here for you, here or any time during the week. Don't hesitate. Please respond to God's word this morning in obedience to what he's speaking to your heart about. Father, hear us. I know you do. I'm so thankful that in Jesus we can always say, that in him you always hear us when we pray, if we are right with you. And Father, I pray that you would answer our prayer in giving us humility. Break our hearts to those things that break your heart. Show us, Lord, the sin that remains. Help us to have every one of those garments taken out of our closet. And that the word of God might be alive in this church. It might be alive in our hearts and in our families, in our children, in our marriages. Help us, Lord, that we might respond rightly to your word with a heart of obedience. You alone deserve that, Master, because you alone are God. And we'll thank you for what you're pleased to accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen.